This is Steve Stein. Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. First, fair warning. This week's episode is less than cheery. It's a cautionary note for what may lay in store for the world's poor and under-resourced. While relatively wealthy nations reel from the sudden onset of COVID-19 and all attempts to contain the outbreak, billions of others, 52% of the world's population in fact, reside in rural enclaves awaiting a pandemic that could kill in droves. Here to discuss health prospects for the rural class is Edward Booty, founder and CEO of Asia-based Reach52, a company established three years ago to provide health screening and distribution services for remote communities using digital apps and mobile communications. To understand what's at stake, we need to take a look at the numbers. From Southeast Asia to Africa and many parts of South America, healthcare infrastructure, including the most basic primary care services, are woefully in short supply. According to the World Bank, average per capita health care spend for the poorest 30 countries is just $33. There is no quality care in these countries. Hospitals are a luxury. Ventilators and respirators, essential in treating the most severe cases of COVID-19, are virtually non-existent. The United States, by contrast, spends nearly $10,000 per annum for every man, woman, and child. Other high-income countries, including Singapore, South Korea, Italy, and Japan, earmark between $2,500 to $5,000 per capita. These are places where COVID-19 now runs rampant, and still healthcare resources are taxed to the point of breaking. So it is that while urban dwellers take cover, scramble to self-isolate, and practice the art of social distancing, the world's rural poor look on, wondering if and how they'll survive when COVID-19 comes calling. Against this backdrop, I met with Edward. He and his team have worked to create healthcare extension programs in some of the most underserved parts of the Philippines. We spoke first about the many day-to-day challenges of procuring even the most basic services and treatments. A COVID-19 outbreak in these communities and in millions of like communities around the world could prove disastrous. Still, there's hope. Digital and mobile technology, combined with well-orchestrated health campaigns, could unleash a renaissance in healthcare management. I asked Edward to outline the possibilities. Listen, welcome. Thanks for taking time out. These are uh, precarious times and interesting moments, and we should probably be social distancing, but you feel like a healthy guy and we're being cautious. But you are in a situation now where you're managing a small business in Asia, scrambling to make sure people are working from home, staying safe. And it's an opportune time to also talk a little bit about health tech and extension of healthcare services to rural communities in Asia. Uh, I can't think of a better guy to do it. Uh, Edward, thanks for joining. Thank you very much, Steve, for having me. And yes, very, very interesting times we face and uh, certainly keen for this conversation and sharing a bit about what we're seeing on the ground and where there's both opportunities as well as some pretty, pretty big risks in global healthcare at the moment. I, I went to the London School of Economics and did business. Um, a lot of my friends going into consulting and banking, but just didn't really feel right right for me at the time. Uh, ended up traveling around India for six months. Uh, sort of ended up with a small internship with Novartis, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world at the end of that, working on one of their social business programs, uh, looking at how to get discounted medicines to very rural, poorer people, but all for profit. So it's discounted medicines, but massively expanding the reach and volumes. Found it fascinating, fell in love with social business and social enterprise. Uh, this is 10, 10, 12 years ago. Fell in love with healthcare. 
Went back to the UK for various reasons, ended up in management and tech consulting, uh, all working with the UK Health Service, all about digitising health programmes. Government spending billions of dollars to get people out of hospital, strengthen primary care, and yeah, just try and get patients to take more responsibility for their health. Um, And then, yeah, I just sort of married those two things together. I sort of thought, well, what if um, we build a low-cost digital primary care model for countries with no healthcare at all and we finance that through building a marketplace of discounted or affordable products that a you know helps people access affordable care in in their community digital low cost great b helps large corporates access emerging markets and enables their emerging market strategy Mm. um had a few friends in investment put a few slides together said this is what I'm thinking they said that looks like a good idea and then yeah five five years ago one-way flight to Asia set up reach 52 and and haven't looked back really and and the name reach 52 what does that derive from yeah so so 52 percent of the world cannot access healthcare that's 3.7 billion people uh world health organization and world bank report from from 2018 and 52 percent of Asia live in rural areas Mm. so our thesis is that the 52 percent um a lack access to healthcare at a global level but within asia there is this rural population that are one two three hours away more five twelve fifteen hours away from your traditional medical facilities pharmacies hospitals clinics etc um how do we build a, a really high quality public and private health service to serve the 52 percent mm. and really enable that access to care in a very sort of decentralized way looking to drive out to the areas that just don't have healthcare access at all. And, and you chose Philippines as a starting point for this venture. Why the Philippines? Yeah, well, well firstly, we're Singapore headquartered as, a, as an organization. That's for the obvious reasons in terms of strong legals and you know good IP protection and so on and so forth. Um, happy to share a bit about our model as well in terms of how it works on the ground and what this service actually looks like. But I mean, I, I, I always joke that I'm a, a reluctant solo founder. I had no one that wanted to do this with me. I thought it was a good idea. A few friends that said it was a good idea and I, and I just went for it. Um, Philippines is an English-speaking country. Yeah. So if we were to go to Cambodia, it was another big target country with another big global pharmaceutical company uh, than the one we now work with or launched with in Philippines. Um, but if we went to Cambodia, I would have had to sort of hire my first employee to be pitching this on the ground mm. uh, whereas Philippines I could do it directly um, was a big big factor um, but also hugely young population rising NCDs hugely rural population more 70-80% live in, in farm and fishing communities uh, huge social media penetration so digital literacy was quite high giving that platform for digital health models to thrive um, and then yeah when we sort of conceptualised this model when I conceptualised this model started going to Big Pharma pharmaceutical companies um one of them was really interested in the philippines and the stars align got our first deal got our first funding and i, I moved to manila for a year so, so the up. pharmaceutical company actually had a vested interest in the philippines or they were thinking about expanding and growing their business there yeah i mean i guess as a precursor to that as a sort of uh, 30 seconds on our model so yeah what we've done is we've built a number of offline first apps that allow women in communities where there's no healthcare to be like a health worker so they can collect data about healthcare needs and they go door to door to go through various risk factors up front 
Uh, we then work with that data and the government to design outreach campaigns so the women then provide health information. We organise rural screening events. If we know a kid hasn't had vitamin A in house 26, we distribute that vitamin in partnership with the government because we got the data up front. We organise rural clinics and we really just look to work in partnership with the government using women on the ground, uh, using offline first apps because about 60% of our communities don't have access to the internet to provide this last mile health support. So, we, so, so then, starting point is data collection. Da yeah, data collection, extend reach of government services. Obviously, we'll, I mean, we'll probably come on to this throughout the conversation, but the, the government services do have limited resources, mm -hmm. often one doctor for 70,000 people. Mm -hmm. In the UK, it's one doctor to 8,000 people. And we say we've got a broken health system. Mm -hmm. It's like different level of, of understaffing and, and, and lack of resources. But yeah, so we're looking to collect the data, have these apps. The women become a sort of last mile extension of traditional primary care infrastructure working with the government. However, we've never really taken any grants or donations, albeit this is a social cause, that the women also order and distribute affordable products. So we've got a second app, which is a marketplace. There's discounted medicines in there for diabetes, hypertension. We've got low cost insurance plans that we're bulk buying from a discount from the biggest insurer in the Philippines and, and soon Cambodia as well, which was our second launch country. We're starting to work with diagnostics and screening kits, and we just work with the big global companies, negotiate discounts, connect to government services first, huge gaps. Philippines, 80% of your healthcare is paid out of pocket. You can also go to the same women and we'll get you a discounted screening kit or a discounted medicine or a NGO vitamin for your kid. And it's just a standard marketplace model like Amazon or eBay, where we take a small commission, we manage the last mile logistics and really... Um, look to drive public and private services deeper into communities where they just don't exist at the moment. So, so in effect, it's doing your market research in rural parts of the Philippines and then selling them what they need. Yeah, that's a, that's a much more simplistic way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, selling or, or firstly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we understand healthcare needs and, and that's really fascinating for me, right? And it's worth having a, a sentence or two on that. Some, some community one, village one, you go to them, it's diabetes is the problem. Mm. You go literally to a community 20 minutes motorbike ride away and you get like weird spikes in kidney disease. And this is where you get these national stats, right? Diabetes is killing us or, you know, heart disease is going through the roof. Sure but within village one and village two that can be right next door, the needs are different. And we look to take this micro personalization approach by collecting the data and then yeah, um, connect to government services, sell them what they need, what they want, negotiate the discounts, open up these markets for private sector and just try and make the whole health system work in a different way for, for lower income people. There's a general trend. I mean, do, yeah. you see, do you see this push, the push of the things that are infecting urban Asia now starting to trickle into the rural parts of those communities? I mean, yes. I mean, there's, there's almost like three categories, right? You get hyper-urbanized, McDonald's, Starbucks everywhere, lifestyle diseases going through the roof, unhealthy environments, simple. Where we're working is in this sort of one to five hour away from the healthcare provider. Mm. Yes, junk food, still junk food and other unhealthy habits penetrate there. Mm. Diabetes and hypertension are the biggest conditions. Mm. Mm. However, income levels are 100 US dollars per family per month, maybe sometimes less, sometimes more. So you've got the Western lifestyle style diseases come into the communities because they're easy the supply chains of this junk food reaches them sort of sort of principle but their incomes are still at that level where they can't afford to treat it which is where we come in um but then on the flip side a story i do like to tell is we i was determined to do some a really hard community right when we first started and it was like 
12 hours dirt roads four by fours hiking over mountains right in the northern tip of the philippines we launched there we did the data collection these guys are cut off these guys these communities are cut off no diabetes yeah. They, they eat rice, they eat what we'd call in, in Singapore organic home-cooked vegetables, farm-to-table, whatever you want to call it. Um, that, that is their lifestyle. Yeah. They are farmers. They're, the top, top cause of death was old age and accidents. So we couldn't work there. There was no need for medicine or much significantly less need for medicine because the people were naturally healthy as a result of their environment. And we do have to consider that for ourselves, for myself. The, the environments in which we live and the way in which we live our lives is ultimately the cause of our health system's unsustainability. Yeah. And when we say the health system is broken and costs are burgeoning and pharmaceuticals are making too much profit, that's because we are effectively killing ourselves through our lifestyle and, and, and that's creating an incredible demand on these services that various organizations are filling. But that's a separate conversation, I think. It, it is, but it's interesting. And I think it's relevant because it required you to go identify which communities were less, least served and most in need of the types of pharmaceutical or other diagnostic support uh, in order to help the government and help the healthcare system support where uh, the government couldn't. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you sort of get this, it's often called like a missing middle or a semi-detached community. High-income people, obviously fine, buy the medicines, $10 a month, affordable. Low-income people, super low-income, you know, the poorest of the poor, often get government subsidies mm-hmm. um, or, or fully free stuff. Um, then you get, in the Philippines, you have five income class levels, A, being richest, E, being poorest. Mm. Uh, we don't work with A and B. We don't work with E because they get free stuff. Um, where we do work is income class C and D. So, so, yeah. so, so that that brings me to you know thinking about um, the you know I, I guess twenty twenty five years ago I worked in the telecommunications space as a consultant, and many licenses were being granted to mobile operators as long as they agreed to connect rural communities outside the main urban areas where obviously most of the revenue could be generated. That was the deal. So they were able to create extensions in ways that government telecommunications companies couldn't. It sounds like you're just borrowing a page from that same idea. Why not extend uh, healthcare services in the same way, finding unique and interesting ways of providing low-cost care and actually connecting suppliers with, with, uh, with, with uh, buyers. Yeah, I, I quite like that analogy, um, and I think that's true. Um, we, let, let me phrase that in different ways as well. Um, Uber is the, one of the biggest taxi firms in the world, and they own no fleet. You know, it's this sort of principle. All they're using is an app to coordinate the resources on the ground to provide a cohesive and awesome user experience taxi service mm. that's better than owning a fleet. So we're taking the same model. You can also talk about Airbnb, right? They've got no apartments, but it's a great hotel booking service. All we're doing is we're taking the resources in the community, empowering them, giving them tech, and and coordinating them in a a way that allows a really cool service to be delivered. It's just that we're health, not hotels or or taxi services. Let me ask you this. Uh, You you mentioned that you were in partnership with a pharmaceutical in the Philippines. How do you guard against the idea that that pharmaceutical organization is looking simply to push its own products versus uh, serving the interest of of these communities, whatever they might need? But big pharma don't want it. You know, the idea of the bad PR of evil pharma company works with cool startup to to rip off the poor headlines Mm. is not what they want Um, a lot of them are maturing in their thought process with things like the access to medicine index which is a scoring of how social socially orientated big pharma are becoming a big part of their their um, organizational culture so a lot of them i think do care 
I don't think it is the big bad evil pharma all the time anymore. Some of them are, don't get me wrong. Um, some products are, don't get me wrong. But there are good parts of pharma that we would tend to work with. Mm. And these are often people that came from the big NGOs, that came from Gates Foundation or something, that are just deploying their impact in a different way. So it just hasn't been a problem. But firstly, I mean, to answer the question more directly, um, we are never exclusive. Everyone is open to competition. I say we are a virtual pharmacy. And if you're working with Watsons or, for our American listeners, Walgreens or CVS, we don't care who fills our shelves. We, we, we provide customers what they want to buy. And we can walk into a Walgreens or a, a Watsons and if we want to buy the cheapest, we buy the cheapest. If we want to buy the premium, we buy the premium. But that is customer choice. And we are no different. We are a virtual shop for lower income people. And we fill the shelves of our, our virtual store. And it's ultimately patient choice. And, and does that require you then to regularly go out, recruit suppliers into your system so that there is a variety and sufficient supply to meet the many needs of your ultimate clients? Yeah, it's a, it's a balance, is the way that I'd phrase it. Um, so, so firstly, we started off with a couple of absolutely fantastic pharmaceutical company partners that, that funded various parts of our expansion and provide product. Uh, we didn't want to grow too fast. We wanted to prove the model. We are very proudly a, a three-year-old startup, uh, obviously ser- serving about you know, 53,000 people now. Um, and we, we had a really nice, yeah, 50,000 people that we could just trial this all on. It wasn't about making it too complex too early. The supply chain's tough, selling insurance is tough and regulated, mm. getting people on the platform is tough. And so, yeah, so you haven't mentioned that. You sell insurance as well as pharmaceuticals or other diagnostic services. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we do. Insurance is actually our biggest, biggest seller, to mm. be honest, um, of what, what people need the most. Mm. Um, and we're also moving into uh, over the counter medicines as well, which we're just launching next month, uh, subject to COVID 19, not, not blocking stuff, which it is quite a lot at the moment. But the, the only thing on the marketplace, and in terms of maximizing the choice, we do still have a degree of gatekeeping that we have to do. For example, with insurance, it's quite complex. Mm-hmm. Even when I buy insurance, trying to compare two plans is pretty tough because they all, you know, all the small print and all the stuff. Oh, it's so, impossible. Yeah. So with, with, with lower income people, we, for, for example, with the insurance, yeah. we do have to do a degree of filtering because mm. having 10 plans mm. is not going to help anyone. We're going to confuse the hell out of people because I couldn't understand it, let alone yeah, people that have never bought insurance before. Mm. So there we are having to do a bit more what I'd call like marketplace management. Mm. But for medicines, yeah, if it's a generic product, amlodipine or one of these main products for hypertension, for example, it, we can have 10 versions of it. It makes no difference. They're just different prices. It's the so, same product. So what's the plan from this? So you, you, if you, among these 50,000, uh, this, this variety of rural communities in the Philippines, I guess, largely uh, you know, aggregated in a certain section of the Philippines, what are you looking to learn? And with that learning, what do you then hope to do? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a good question. So firstly, as I say, the whole initial model was let's build a last mile health service for this rural remote semi-detached community connect to government service extend government service never take a grant these are out-of-pocket markets people have to buy stuff anyway let's make it cheaper Uh, they can buy stuff and in the process we're opening up a business for for socially minded corporates that are happy to discount. It's just been trying to prove this. We've now got it off the ground. We got insurance live in December last year. Um, I guess learning-wise, oh my God, like so, so, so much stuff. Um, well, let, yeah. Let's use it this way. Like from, from preconceived notions about what you thought it would look like versus what it is today, what have you discovered? Absolutely great question. Um, I assumed if we built a health service, people would want to use it. 
um, not the case. If you've never accessed a doctor before, you go to your friends or your family or Facebook or, or quack doctors or herbal healers. Um, so dislodging some of these deeply ingrained social and cultural beliefs has been quite difficult. We even have like cases where the doctor will prescribe drug X for diabetes. Mm. And then they'll go back to their mother who also has diabetes and mother, the mother will be like, oh, actually, no, I take drug Y and it works really well for me. Mm. And the patient will just ignore the prescription mm. and start taking what the mother's taking. Mm. So there's this social influence that is fascinating. Um, dependence on telcos. You mentioned telcos earlier. They all say they've got 80% coverage within the countries. They don't. 60% of our communities do not have the internet. Mm. So the dependence upon the... And payments as well. Great. Selling medicines. Cool. These are unbanked economies. Mm. So that means we have to transport cash around the communities. Huge risk. Barrier to scale. So great to talk about digital health if the underpinning infrastructure isn't there just makes life hard for sort of social social business models like us makes it hard for distributors to do supply chain innovation because you haven't got the internet and you haven't you haven't got um payment systems there you haven't got visa right it just doesn't exist um government relations uh easier and harder than i thought on one side you go to some communities corrupt as hell want bribes we don't work there never paid bribe never will on the flip side you get governments that are so engaged and so on it and you have this sort of I feel not feel sorry for them that's a bit that's not the right phrase but they just they're just such lovely committed people they get it and then you look at their health budget and they've got like $25,000 US to serve 70,000 people you mm. know and just like the the amount of funding they have is just so weak and it sort of changed my mindset about how we want to support them um, and yeah, there's a, there's a whole range of other issues there. I've actually just written a piece for um, LinkedIn and other channels, which is the 10, 10 biggest challenges we face that we'll be publishing next week. So perhaps we could link that in this in this podcast as well as we yeah, can look at that. But it actually details a lot more about these and sort of six or seven other key yeah. real obstacles that we've come up against that we didn't expect. Yeah, it's you know it, it's and that'd be great. And and I you know it also brings me back to a lot of the discussions that telcos in the region have been having about they have an opportunity to become the next bank or therefore the next service provider. And they also talk about digital health. Why aren't uh, the mobile providers in uh, Philippines and elsewhere doing what you're doing? I is there any reason why they can't? Is it resources or is it they don't see the, the business case yet? Or is it because they're just too constrained with other requirements? Uh, yeah, I guess I'm not a telco guy overall, so it's hard for me to like really give the... the um detailed analysis of that but well i guess thinking uh, more in terms of if anybody had if you will the infrastructure in order yeah. to serve in a health tech fashion it would be the telcos therefore why aren't they executing on this uh and if they are where are they doing it and how are they doing it different mm. i mean there are, yeah when we started we were looking for models like this there's some quite nice models in mexico where people pay five dollars extra on their phone bill per month and they do get access to mm. primary care physicians on the phone there are some successful models in India. Um, some of the big telcos in in Philippines have set up telehealth services. Um, it doesn't seem, I would agree, it doesn't seem to be working or taking off. Mm. I think that's a mixture of reasons when, I, when I'm thinking about it on the spot, right? Firstly, the regulation's quite prohibitive. Mm. Um, it's again, one of the biggest challenges that we face. Uh, face if you want to write a prescription if I wanted to write a prescription for you for diabetes now it has to be a face-to-face -face interaction yeah um, if I want to give you a prescription it has to be a bit of paper um, that is written into law so it doesn't so yeah we can set up a telehealth center in Manila in the capital of Philippines for with a hundred doctors 
great. All we're going to be doing is providing you friendly advice. I can't tell you you've got diabetes. So there's a, there's, there is a real limit to what these guys can do. E-prescriptions aren't allowed. Um, there's there's thin margins in it. Um, these people don't often pay for credit, and I or phone phone balance. You know, invest in the, in their telco. Um, and then on the flip side, the other thing that I constantly think about is. Um, by going down this model, you don't get the people most in need. Like, if I think about it in pure commercial terms, right? Older people have more diseases, they need more medicines, they would spend more money. However, the older people are also the ones without phones. Mm. So I think what happens with the telcos, you know, I'm speaking really generally there, right? But roughly speaking, the more young people are more digitally able, more able to consume health service, more able to consume digital services but are less in need of consuming health services. That's fascinating. So a demographic challenge. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that we're struggling with. We, are, we do a lot of work with Facebook at the moment, or, or last year especially, and we are building Facebook Messenger chatbots. We can chat, get health information, reorder medicines, and, and, and. Awesome. But the people that we need to most support are over 50-year-old males and females with complex comorbid conditions. Mm. They're not generally using Facebook Messenger. Yeah. So we have to maintain this full offline channel, women in the communities, offline apps, because that actually serves the people most in need. Mm. But then you also have to enable this digital solution. But that, yeah, I haven't been to touch wood, haven't been to the doctor for five or six years, and therefore I wouldn't have spent any money with the service that I've built because, mm. yeah, luckily I haven't needed medicine. So mm. I could be consuming the services that Reach52 provides, but never actually giving back in a marketplace model. And I think it's something around that that might be a challenge as well. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something earlier, and I just want to come back to this. Uh, you said well, if you go into the most remote areas, uh, it, surprise, surprise, people don't have some of these uh, uh, modern diseases. They're, they're not dealing with diabetes. They're not dealing with kidney malfunction or cardiac issues. Um, is there an opportunity here with the technology and the networks you've created to educate and inform people on better lifestyle habits so that they don't have to buy any of these pharmaceuticals or services to begin with? Yeah, um, I mean, that's exactly part of, that's 100% part of our model. Um, so, I mean, if I talk, almost talk about it from a patient point of view of what we do, we, we go to a rural village, we train two or three women in that village, we give them this offline uh, app and, and phone, we pay them, it's worth noting, often people think they're volunteers, but they get paid a good monthly salary with us, creating jobs for women, which is great. Um, they go door to door, collect data about health needs, height, age, weight, do you smoke, do you drink, what are your symptoms, do you have any current diseases, any family history, standard health risk questionnaire. Mm. Within the tech, we can actually build programs, we call it the E&O module, engagement and outreach. So let's just say we'll run a, 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 an algorithm through the data and say we want to do hypertension screening, high blood pressure. Um, do ABC, so t get consent, take blood pressure reading, log results, we build the task list relevant to people that are overweight equals true, smoking equals optional but true, bad diet, family history, but current disease of hypertension equals false. So you can just cut through the risk factors. Normally about 15% per village crop up from that, that risk report. And then the women in the community, we give them a blood pressure monitor for a month. They look at their phone, go and see these 167 people out of probably about 1,000 normally, do three blood pressure readings, log it, and then, yeah, we'll find a 20, 30, 40% of those people will be either moderate or severe hypertension. Mm. So we diagnose active cases. And don't get me wrong, you know, this is one of the biggest killers in the Philippines. 17% of deaths globally is due, to, is due to high blood pressure and hypertension, or at least it's a causal factor. So we help these people know that they've got a disease, diagnose. For the other 50% that don't, 
it's exactly that. It's lifestyle advice. You know, seriously, you're on a you're on a path to a, a an unhealthy lifestyle and potentially early death. Act now. And I mean, I'm very. We we are trying to be very direct in our messaging, and also that you are. You know, I think we have this sort of immunity as human beings that even if you're overweight or drinking too much or smoking too much you assume you're not the most unhealthy person i i probably live quite an unhealthy lifestyle but i like to my i don't think my ego can take it so i think i sort of tell myself that i'm not but by using data if somebody came to me and said look ed we've looked at your lifestyle mm. you're in the top 10 percent, mate <laughs> like seriously change it now mm. otherwise y- y- you really are and here's the proof and and stratifying the population in that way is exactly something we do and we also try and do it village by village so like you'll say to village look you know your hypertension is like double the village next door mm. you know you can sort of start to play on some of these social sort of uh insecurities maybe i'd call it but by presenting people with data yeah. making it targeted making it personalized and really contextualizing it in the in the broader community is exactly something we do for multiple conditions not just hypertension and it's really important don't you set up an interesting dynamic with this? Because in some ways you're putting the pharmaceutical companies in competition with the government because ultimately public uh, funding goes to support these people who are, let's say, diagnosed with hypertension. And then um, they, the government has to pay for that treatment, I, I guess, is the way it works, unless you, you need to be insured for it. So that, um, again, the pharmaceuticals would say, well, you know, we want to sell our product as they naturally would. And the government says we want to cre- move towards prevention so that we don't have to pay for those services. How does that dynamic play out in these rural areas that you're talking about? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I mean, to be to be just direct, I mean, I'll challenge those assumptions. The Philippines health system is 80% out of pocket paid. The government is paying 20, 30, 40, 50%, depending on the area. The government spending is very much hospital focused. Okay. If you have kidney dialysis or something and you need to be inpatient admitted, that's what the government funding centered around. If we're talking about primary care clinics, you know, rural areas, often the doctor's time is covered. Mm. Um, there's normally there's four medicines for hypertension, di- one hypertension, one diabetes, one antibiotics that's available for free. Mm. But because of the complex supply chain, they stock out about 70% of the time in, in our areas. Okay. So there is, so the doctors, if you imagine like you're going to a clinic, the doctor's there, but the doctor's got no test strips to give you the diabetes test, you pay for that. Or you go to a private clinic in the next town that's three hours drive away. You want a medicine, the doctor sometimes has stock, they sometimes don't. You might think the doctor has stock, turn up to get your free medicines, oh sorry it ran out last week, the next delivery is in three months. So yeah, the government isn't paying for this stuff, it is happening, universal health coverage or UHC is coming, but uh, yeah, the prevention agenda is more important for people's pockets. And I mean, this is again one of our big learnings, is that um, people don't prioritize what I call silent conditions. Mm. So I'll tell you, you've got hypertension, but you can't feel it. It's just there and, and it's not it's not hurting you. And the, the analogy I like to draw, and the biggest reasons that we see people taking action is, is pain. If you fall off your motorbike, break your arm, bleeding everywhere, you get help fast, mm. right? Mm. If it's hypertension somewhere and some guy's told you about something that you don't understand, you don't, you, you might start, you often don't. The, we don't continue at least because it's, it's a silent condition you have to prioritize limited resources often towards luxury goods we do find that as well you haven't got money for your medicines but hey you got a smart you got a smart tv how the hell does that work mm. um so this is interesting prioritization that that doesn't that precludes uh, investment in silent conditions but the biggest change in that what we found is um is people that have experienced a different type of pain and that's emotional pain mm. your family or your father or your aunt has died from hypertension mm 
because she wasn't taking her medicine mm. and she had a heart attack when she was 50. Those, those people that have had that emotional pain take their treatments like clockwork. It's been a really interesting, we only learned this probably back end of last year. Um, and it's a very interesting way to invest in health. And again, not in an evil way, but it's part of how we're doing public health campaigns now, telling these stories and really looking to amplify the truth of what happens, right? Yeah, it also comes back to what you said about the, the health histories, going in, uh, asking the questions, asking if there's any trace of this type of disease or a death in the family. That gives an indication as to what the triggers might be to persuade people to take up different types of healthcare support or service. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, it's something that I we haven't quite got this off the ground yet. I'm trying to get it funded. But um, the idea of we talk about precision medicine, right? We have different diseases and you could, if we, if, what, if we both got cancer now, you might have different genotypes or whatever it is and they can make very targeted therapies. I, I believe public health content and information sharing should be the same. Mm-hmm. If we had a doctor sitting in front of both of us right now, there's a, a few years difference between us, blah, blah, blah. You've got different family histories. The diabetes advice they would give us based on hearing our stories would be different. Mm-hmm. If there was a South Asian male, an Indian guy sat there completely different these guys have got a genetic predisposition if there was a 16 year old girl athletic a 16 year old athletic girl sitting in the room different so why don't we take a precision approach to content and public health campaigns because and that's exactly what we're trying to build so capture this metadata almost about the person and i've got this idea that we're trying to build of like writing content in fragments so if you read a diabetes article just static content we we make it personalise around who you are and pull in different messaging based upon the level of risk that you face and whether it's preventative or proactive or or more maintenance because you've already got it. It should be changed. The, the, the one page diabetes summary should be changing for us all, but fundamentally no one's building that and that's something we're looking at really heavily. Yeah, and of course this is the big hope of big data uh, and artificial intelligence. Once you can do that and you have the data sets, uh, you can start to start to parse it in such a way where you can tailor the message to different communities in different ways. So but a, a ways off, but nevertheless, it's the, the great hope. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly what we're going to focus on, yeah. Um, yeah, and I agree. Big data and, and digital has the keys to solving global health challenges, for sure. So, so let's let's take uh, a little bit of a sidestep, and this re- brings us into our current situation with managing COVID nineteen. Um, you've been on the ground uh, in these rural areas, observing some of the challenges that they have. What concerns do you have about the movement or the shift of this disease from largely urban areas into rural areas? And if that does happen, wh- what type of measures might be taken to prevent or contain it? Oh, yeah, well. Yeah, obviously, firstly, absolute at the forefront of our agenda, hitting hitting us as an organisation in different ways. I mean, Manila's on lockdown at the moment, all offices closed, we're having to go extreme, uh, you know, uh, home-based working, a lot of our projects are cancelled. So, yeah, it really is a huge issue at the forefront of, um, forefront of our agenda. Um, it is, of course, a huge global health emergency that, that worries me deeply in, in various ways. Um, I think a lot of people underestimated it to start, and I saw all sorts of stuff on social media. It's just the flu, blah, blah, blah. I think just in the last few days, right? I mean, I don't know when this will be published, but you know, over, over the last weekend, uh, the world's changed their views, right? This is all of a sudden a really big problem. Manila shut down overnight. Um, with, from a rural health perspective, I've got two views on it. I mean... One is that these, these these communities are already sort of in self-isolation. They're really far away. They're not near the cities. So we're sort of like quarantined just by result of their geography and the fact they're not flying here, there and everywhere like we are here in Singapore. But yeah, on the flip side, if, if it does start to balloon in India 
or 80, again, 80% patients pay out of pocket, lots of cash in hand laborers, people that aren't gonna call in sick to work because they need to get paid. And then a very weak public health system uh, that doesn't have, you know, we're talking about the lack of defibrillators in Italy and they're running out. I look at these health systems and there are no defibrillators in these areas. Yeah. These people are gonna die, right? That's, it's, a death, it's a death sentence, not, not a, something that's gonna that maim you or, or be a source of morbidity. So yeah, it does worry me. Um, but then that said, I, I, I thought you might ask me this, right? And I was thinking about this on the way over. It's, it's worrying, but we shouldn't just center around COVID and a lack of COVID-19 preparedness. These health systems are not prepared for, for anything. Like, come on, like, you've got basic diabetes. They can't help you. They've got no test strips. They've got no medicine. You have a heart attack. They often can't help you. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about COVID-19. It's just the fact that private, pri- primary care, last mile health systems have been chronically underinvested in. There's a lack of data. There's a lack of um, uh, integration of government services. There's been a lack of planning for this and indeed modern lifestyle diseases that's causing issues in the quality of care and availability of services for everything. But then there's there's also the danger of divergence of healthcare resources to manage COVID and away from primary care. What kind of impact will that have? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're already seeing it, right? We're, we're doing what I'd call, let's call it like routine healthcare. You know, appointments, getting medicines, getting insurance. It's just, you're always, always on, always there, healthcare. The governments in our communities, sorry, governments in our, our regions, are completely paralyzed by this, right? So they've stopped all our programs. Please, please pause while we work out what this is. So as a result, if you think about, you know, sort of again, speaking loosely and broadly, um, yeah, all the government resources are looking at COVID. How many newborn babies aren't getting the care they need? How many aren't getting the vaccines? How many, we, we, we because of the lockdown in Manila, uh, we dispense all our medicines in, in Manila. Flights are canceled. We can't get medicines to people. That's, that's, the, that's the reality on the ground, right? So other health services are grinding to a halt. And that, again, it's, I'm not saying COVID's not a problem. It should be the priority. It is a global health epidemic. Mm but other things are falling off the radar and other operations are ceasing. And I think that the, the COVID might in principle never reach these communities, but they're gonna die of other stuff while we're planning for it. So it's a very tough tough balancing act. Yeah. So, so we're talking about uh, if, you, if you take these communities in the Philippines, multiply them across South and Southeast Asia, ex-China, we're talking about a potentially two billion people being exposed to the or plus uh, being exposed to the possibility of not having access to primary or basic needs, regardless of whether or not it's COVID related or not. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly the way that I see the world. Um, I, as I say, I fully agree with the government and the, the global community's fear of COVID. But I just look at it and say, well, that's just another thing these health systems can't deal with. Um, they also can't deal with cancer, right? And that's one of the biggest killers on the planet at the mm-hmm. moment. And yeah, as I say, well, I'm trying to, we, we, are, we are obviously looking to support the COVID response. Um, but at the same time, I do think there needs to be a global community shift just to accepting the fact that primary care needs to be strengthened for everything. We should be investing in that. If those primary care systems are stronger for general diseases, if and when something like COVID-19 happens again, we'll be better prepared. Do you think this crisis will elicit that kind of response from the public-private sector that we do need to double down and start and invest and support our communities in ways we've never dreamed of before? I, I, yeah, again, I was just, um, 
yeah, we're, we're doing our COVID-19 response and yeah, we, we do have a slide on this at the front. I, I think te- telehealth, as we talked about earlier with the telcos, right? Um, telehealth has never really been adopted. Let's put it that way. I like I, Even me, if I go and see a doctor, I prefer to see someone that touches me versus speak to them on, on Skype or a video call platform. That's COVID is forcing stuff like this. And I think I think a, a fallout of this will be that telehealth will be here to stay. We'll actually be forced to do it. And we, actually, that's quite convenient. I'm going to do that again. Um, I think regulation will have to change. The governments will realise that the lack of doctors and their weak health systems need innovation. And they'll have to relax laws. So, I, yeah, I do, I do think this will be, a, I hope, that this will be a wake-up call and I can see some of the things that we adopt for COVID sticking such as telehealth and I can see yeah innovation being needed due to the fear of this recurring that will also lead to regulations changing and, and some other, and people for example health insurance I know, I know a lot of friends in Singapore even that don't that aren't insured and are scrambling to buy health insurance mm-hmm. what's the gonna again speaking commercially almost I, I see insurers getting a huge boom off the back of this mm-hmm. I, I looked up in my travel protection right it's logical people yeah. are scared it's emotional they don't feel protected I bet I bet there's a lot of people shifting up to the platinum plans of their insurance right now so yeah, it's just such a reminder of how early we are in the stage of developing healthcare systems to support one and all. So, uh, Edward, thank you so much for spending time with us, sharing your insights, uh, doing the good work you're doing. Uh, we wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thank you very much. And, and thanks. Thanks you all for listening. Uh, yeah, yeah. Lo- lots of challenging time ahead, but genuinely, um, yeah, positive and, and a huge amount of, of great work left to be done. That was my conversation with Edward Booty, founder and CEO of Reach52, an Asia-based health tech startup attempting to address the healthcare needs of the rural poor. Sometimes it takes a major crisis to shift the foundations of traditional thinking and rattle complacency. Rising healthcare costs remain a leading concern for virtually every country in the world. In the poorest, it's an effort just to provide the very basics. In wealthier, industrialized nations, it's a matter of meeting the expectations of populations demanding high-cost and high-tech care. It's an elusive affair to find the right balance. In this week's Asia Insider Minute, we contemplate the possibility that post-crisis, healthcare policymakers will rethink the premise of our modern healthcare systems. The new normal calls for preparedness and broad-based access to primary care. That exists to a large degree in places like China, Denmark, Cuba, and the UK, but not in the US, where the price of care is too high and healthcare insurance still limited. Throughout Asia, some markets have thrown in with the Western model and are now moving towards hospital-based curative care. In other markets that remain too poor or unconvinced that Western-style medicine is the be-all to end-all, the COVID-19 crisis could rekindle the call for greater investment in primary care and perhaps even a return to traditional medicine. Edward and other entrepreneurs like him see greater hope and lower per capita spend requirements if governments focus on primary care but use low-cost digital solutions to track disease, service remote communities, and distribute care in a way that doesn't punish citizens based on their income or location. It's not socialized medicine, but rather an increase in reliance on data to identify and adjust for a population's overall health care needs. Of course, realigning incentives and guarding against big business interests that see more money and higher profits in hospital-based care is the thing that enlightened governments will need to guard against. 
Awareness campaigns and insistence that each citizen take ownership of his or her own health to the greatest degree possible is a key ingredient. It has much to do with the public will. Until then, renewed attention to personal hygiene and social distancing will remain practices to live by. Forgive me the dire subject matter in this week's episode. Next week, a conversation and message of hope. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit Inside Asia at iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or comment and rate the program on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Don't have time to listen, but want a quick synopsis of our discussion? Then sign up for the Inside Asia newsletter by visiting us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving our weekly update. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, come in from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.